What can we do to increase the immersion within our role-playing games? What things can we try that will support the fantasy engagement within our adventures? What would happen if we just slowed down? If you say the real life fills up your days And you don't have time to play Well, midlife is the best time to start a new role-playing phase And you need a rescue Chase coming at you with a rescue A role-play rescue Chase gonna help my friend Let's sit down the game My name is Che Webster, and this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello, rescuers. Welcome to the show, and I hope you're well. Today's episode arose from another one of those moments in which I couldn't keep the passion of the topic inside any longer. It was also triggered by some pretty disparate experiences in my own gaming, coalescing into a moment of clarity. Thus, although I'm hoping that clarity can be transmitted during this episode, you'll have to be the judge whether I manage to pull it off. Anyway, it's best to stop labouring the introductions, get to the call-ins, and dive on in to the main topic itself. This is Season 5, Episode 21, Slow Down for Immersion. Hey, Trey, Jason here. Enjoyed your um, episode on the GM's toolkit. Thought you did a good job covering that and hitting the essentials there. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add, to be honest. I'm more of a, you know, have the rules and my GM journal. I've taken all my notes and, you know, dice and scrap paper and pencil. So pretty much kind of basically the same kind of thing you have, so. I suppose the only other thing might be depending, like if you go to a con or something, I think people kind of do, although this is more advanced than what you're talking about, so disregard it. I I was going to say, if you go to a con, people kind of do expect to see miniatures and things, and and I'll take props and things, like for a convention game, but but that's a whole separate topic, really, than than a game at home, you know, or a regular face-to-face game, meet in the coffee shop or something, so never mind, con prep is, is a separate kettlefish. So anyhow, you did a great job. Look forward to your next episode. Take care. Hi, Jay. Common Senshman here. Just a quick message, sir. Enjoyed listening to the um, actual play you did using, I think it was Microlite and the carapace point crawl method. Um, obviously, the bit I'm <laughs> focusing on is the carapace bit because I'm always interested in how that play test went. I think a couple of things that occurred to me was that... Um, I think, although it's not explicitly stated in my carapace, I think most of the time when you're rolling, it's a, I don't know the correct name for this, but it's kind of a, uh, you know, a convention handful, you know, pretty much every single one of the polyhedrals represented in the throw. So the idea is you can throw a whole handful of them and get all the de- all, all the things. Also, it'd be quite interesting what your point crawl looked like if you still have it. And did you make a custom monster list to go with the, um, with your adventure? Because I'm, don't think carry crawlers were in my in my ad hive, but I could be mistaken. <laughs> Probably should look back. All right, cheers, fella. Bye. So, Jason and Goblin's Henchman kicking off the call-ins this week, and thank you both. Brilliant to hear from you, Jason. I don't really have much to add apart from yep, you're quite right. Convention gaming, whole different kettle of fish. Something I've not done, 
and in fact I'm kind of slightly terrified to do but hey maybe one day Goblin's Hench, uh, glad you enjoyed Carapace. Um, for those who don't know, he's referring to the Patreon-only um, upload that I put up uh, about a week ago, I suppose now, maybe a little longer, um, which has me playing Carapace, his uh, module using Microlite 74 2D6. Um, and it's an interesting experiment for about 50-minute, I think, episode, um, which you can get if you're a $1 patron or more. But anyway, I digress. Did I keep the map? Probably somewhere. I'll need to sort of go through notes. I'm pretty good at not throwing stuff away quickly. As for the monster t uh, table, I'm not sure I did anything. I think it was there. Um, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Like you, I need to go and look. But uh, I don't remember creating anything new. So Karen, Karen Crawler definitely, I think, was there. But um, I guess we're both staring at each other across the table going, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so I'll just stop blithering. Get on to the next message, which is from Roy. Take it away, Roy. Hey, Jay, Roy here. I'm up to episode 515. You and Dave Aldridge discuss RPGs and education. Uh, such an interesting topic for me, and I love the distinction you guys make between kind of the unintentional benefits of role-playing games versus trying to make something educational out of it. So I recently released um, an episode on my podcast where I was interviewing my brother and he works at a high school and started an RPG club there. And we talk a little bit about that as well. I think we cover a lot of the same ground probably that you do. But if you're interested, you might want to pop in there and listen to the second half of that episode. I think what struck me when I talked to him about it was, first of all, that he was doing something for those kids that kind of fall through the cracks, right? That they aren't involved in a particular group or clique or sport or club. And this was a way to uh, prevent those people from falling through the cracks. And the other part, which we discussed somewhat in that episode, was uh, for people who are kind of on the autism spectrum and how... It kind of gives them an opportunity to practice some social skills, not only in-game, but just around the table. And furthermore, when I think about people who try to incorporate games intentionally with pedagogical goals, I have another brother who teaches at university. He's a neuroscientist. And... He has tried it with some mixed results, but he has found it to be very difficult to incorporate uh, games into his lessons, at least thus far. Um, actually, that's my brother, Philip, which I uh, interviewed on a previous episode. But uh, yeah, so I really found it interesting how you guys drew the boundary between the two, between the unintentional effects and the pedagogical effects. And just to say that, uh, yeah, true to my experience and what I've uh, heard from my brothers. Roy Lorenko there from Chaos's Limb podcast. And of course, please do check out his episodes that he's been describing there if you're interested in more about what Dave and I were talking about back in 515. And Roy, thank you for calling in. I broadly agree with that. And um, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I do the school club is as a venue for people who perhaps don't have other interests or perhaps don't kind of quite feel like they fit in elsewhere 
you know that I'm all about you know creating communities where people can discover a little bit about themselves, a little bit about something to do with gaming, and also just to feel accepted for who they are, and and that's what's so important to me. And it's wonderful that the school supports that. And I think um, you know many times I've had people referred to me. Uh, you know, increasingly actually girls as well as boys who are just, you know, start struggling a little bit socially, gives them that safe place. And you're quite right. They they develop the skills they need. And again, one of the people I look to on this, uh, who talks about this quite a lot, is Paris Conte. And also, you know, Frank Turfler, both those guys, good friends of mine, they also on their own podcast have like spoken about these issues. So we seem to be kind of broadly in agreement around these core ideas. Anyway, Roy, brilliant. Thanks to hear from you. Game on. This week, I had a bit of an epiphany in relation to the fantasy engagement in games. In short, I realised that slowing down the pace of play increases the sense of immersion in the world in which we're playing. This realisation seems so obvious now that I say it, but honestly, this was new to me just a few days ago. Before we get to the backstory, I'd just like to clarify what I mean by the fantasy engagement. Quote, Fantasy lovers want to escape into another world. They want to be their characters and lose themselves in the imaginary world. Players who spend a lot of time interacting with the other characters in the world and like to play out the day-to-day routines in their characters' lives are likely fantasy seekers, especially if they want to act out every shopping trip, end quote. I am, of course, quoting from Game Angry by Scott the Angry GM Ream, a very useful little book for anyone who wants to play better games. Anyway, this week I began running a game of Classic Traveller which, as it turns out, didn't end up beginning as a solo game, but due to the amazing generosity and support of listeners to this podcast, began to be played on Rollgate. I really hope that the player involved won't mind me telling this tale, but they did something that forced me to state very clearly an expectation at the metaphorical table, you know, this being an online game, which I simply had taken for granted. This, in turn, was the source of the epiphany, and as with most things in life, my learning arose from a mistake that I had made. The moment was simple. The player posted that I had updated their character sheet with the things they had bought using the equipment lists in the Traveller rulebooks. They asked if this was okay, and then they made an interesting statement. Quote, Or did you say you wanted us to play out going shopping? End quote. Here's the thing. Many gamers assume that some actions their characters take are not important, boring even. Shopping is one of those actions. Unfortunately, this often leads to a belief that if it's in the book, you can buy it. Always and anywhere. This is not a belief that I hold when I am referee. Thus, shopping can be quick and easy, but you should not assume what you want is available. The first realisation was I would normally be able to see the player thumbing through the book and writing stuff down, so I'd have asked, "Um, what are you doing? But in a text-based online game via Rollgate, I only have the words on the screen. I realised that we need a simple rule for the table, and I stated it like this. When you want your character to take an action in the world, you need to tell the referee two things. Firstly, tell me what you want to do. And secondly, tell me how you want to do it. Pretty simple. 
And if you're not sure if something is possible or how to go about taking an action, the fallback is to ask the referee about it. And that's when the epiphany happened. In thinking through that decision, a flood of things written in the classic Traveller rulebooks, other stuff in old school essentials, which is itself a clone of the basic expert D&D game from 1981, and moments in play down in the dungeons of Thal, in that moment, all of it came together in a simple realisation. If you want to engage people in the fantasy of your world, slow the heck down. Going shopping in your world is important. Well, it is if you care about the fantasy and your players care about the fantasy. Another word for this is immersion, by the way. But what we are at heart talking about here is the fantasy engagement. Going shopping in your world is important. Slow down and go shopping. No, not the tedious acting out of every interaction, and unless you have players who are also big on expression, but yes, slow down and go shopping. Let me explain. For some folk, especially GMs, the act of equipping characters is a tedious delay in the game session. In a very busy world where it's really hard to get people together for even a single game, let alone for a sequence of sessions in a, in a row, it's tempting to see going to the blacksmith for a new sword or dropping by the provisioner for some rations as a tedious, non-essential detail. I get that. But at least for some of us, this is an important window into your game world. This week, I also began a game of 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons with some newbies at the school club. Because the Essentials Kit box set comes with a map of Phandalin, the town that is the starting point for the adventures in the module, I chose to throw this map down so the players could see it. With rapt attention, they asked questions and promptly went to the notice board in town, the one I mentioned in the last episode, to find a job. Once they'd chosen a quest, however, they wanted to go and buy extra rations and see what was going on in the shops. We spent about I don't know, 30 minutes in some very entertaining interaction scenes in two stores. They bought some ration packs and then they went and bought a box of 20 crossbow bolts. They met two NPCs and had a really good time talking to them, but it was fun for everyone, especially with me capering around in the role and talking in funny voices. But, and here's my key point, the world began to come alive. When they travelled to the first location, the Dwarven Excavation Site, I noticed something I didn't expect. Of the five players, four of them began to speak in the first person. They started to interact with the NPCs in role, with voices and a bit of body language on top. It was good to watch, and it all added to the fun. More than that, it was pretty unselfconscious. I don't believe that the shopping trip was, for these players, a waste of time. They were learning some stuff about the world Phandalin is set within. For example, during the interaction, the players learned how gold and silver coins are exchanged. They also learned the attitudes that common folk have towards adventurers. And plus, they learned some attitudes between humans, dwarves, elves and gnomes. And yes, Shandy Andy, I even played the gnome NPC. During the rest of the session... The players became increasingly immersed in their roles, and I, I think that was worth a shopping trip. Getting to play Traveller this week, I realised that there is a whole opportunity to show rather than tell. 
player stuff about the world of Regina and the Third Imperium setting. Can they buy the gear in the starport? One reason to say no might be that the item in question is prohibited by the law level of the world, or perhaps, being a highly expensive and rare item, it's not available freely in regular shops. Do you need black market contacts? Or perhaps someone can point you to another nearby star system where the laws are different? In any case, these questions lead to interesting opportunities to create small objectives within the larger scope of the adventure. Again, you can show players the expectations of common people and react in ways that signal the likely response if certain items are sought out. While I might be tempted to hand-wave the shopping, I am missing out on offering the players a good window on the world I am presenting. This intersects with the recent discussion between myself and Andy Goodman of Grizzly Peaks fame about the power of good, clean description. I don't want to get into that whole topic here, but there is a relationship between the referee of the game thinking details don't matter to the players and the goal of engaging the fantasy seekers in a good fantasy. Do you want me to describe Big Ben when you were in London, even though you might have a rough idea of how, what that building might look like? But, well, I'll be honest. For me, I wouldn't describe the clock tower at Parliament as Big Ben because, as a Brit, I know the tower is not Big Ben. The bell is the object with that name. I might have the cabbie driving you there, drop that into conversation as we interact on the way. Or maybe a street vendor will smugly correct the player character who points and says, Look guys, it's Big Ben! Either way, I'm able to share my vision of the world we are playing in through the inclusion of seemingly minor details. But to do that, I have to take my time. I have to slow down if I want to immerse my players in the fantasy. And to do that, I have to value the details of the world we're gaming in. Hey, Jay, Jason here. Just want to let you know I enjoyed your latest episode, 520. Um, I do enjoy your show. It does inspire me. I'm getting ready to start a, a 5e. I mean, to be fair, part of this is Colin's inspiration too. But I'm getting ready to start a 5e game for my son or do a, a one-on-one game. Or maybe a, a two game, two players, and um, use a GM emulator like Mythic. I don't know. I haven't really decided yet. But I'm mean, pretty much play rules as written, and that's thanks to you. You know, you and Colin, and I'm looking forward to that. So you do inspire me. You bring out some good ideas. I love hearing your stories, and I hope you keep podcasting because I do look forward to listening to it every week. So talk to you later. A related issue to the question of how we run the game to invoke a sense of fantasy is the degree to which we accept abstraction in the game. This issue, when I really think about it, is what lies at the heart of whether I like a set of rules when I read them. Too much abstraction undermines my sense of immersion into the fantasy of the world. An example, equipment tracking versus the usage die. For those who don't know, the usage die is a game mechanism that attempts to do away with all that finicky messing about with counting things in the game. Nobody cares how many arrows you've got, folk proclaim. What we'll do instead is assign a usage die to the arrow, say a d8. And when you finish a battle, you roll the usage die on a 1 or a 2, you downgrade the die type in the die chain, another wonderfully abstract concept, to, in our example, a d6. Next time, down to a d4, and eventually the arrows are all gone. Simple and abstract. 
I've made many attempts at expressing my discomfort with the usage die mechanism in games like the black hack. At heart, the problem is that I want to count the arrows in my quiver because it increases my sense of verisimilitude, my sense of immersion, and ultimately my sense of fantasy. This fantasy world feels more real when I count my arrows. I don't have a problem with counting down from 20 arrows to zero, and the dramatic possibilities that arise from shooting too many arrows are interesting to me. And yes, this is about how a game feels to me. Thus, if the usage die works for you, then hooray. It doesn't feel right to me, and I hope you don't mind me saying so. Too much abstraction harms my sense of fantasy, and there are games that I can feel okay with, and there are others which, frankly turn me off. Honestly, I prefer the games that have a higher sense of fantasy realism and verisimilitude. I also recognise that all players are seeking what I'm seeking in a game. GURPS and Mithras are games that lower the abstraction quotient, but many players feel this leads to too much complexity and too slow a pace of play, and so I compromise by playing other games with higher levels of abstraction in the places where I don't mind it as much. But overall, that's about all I have to say about that right now. Roleplay Rescue is supported by a tight group of patrons through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. As I record this, we have 27 patrons and are but a gnat's whisker from hitting the next goal at 30 patrons. What you might not know is that I recently changed both the Patreon tier rewards and the goals. So the 30 patron goal is something a little different and actually was a suggestion from patron Tim Baker. Thanks, Tim. The most popular episodes are interviews with tabletop RPG luminaries, such as the recent interview with Gavin Norman. Although I can't guarantee that anyone will say yes to an interview, I have decided to make the 30 patron goal all about the interviews. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, if we hit the 30 patron goal, I will approach and invite another tabletop role-playing luminary onto the show for an interview. Even better than that, I will first run a patron-only poll to decide which luminary to approach. Once we have a target guest, I'll stick my neck out and invite them onto the show. Of course, if they say no, well, that'll be on them. But I'll happily run a second poll and so on, keeping going until someone the patrons want says yes. How does that sound? We have 27 patrons today. Thank you to every single one of them. But what about you? Are you in? Becoming a member costs as little as $1 a month. If three of you step forward, we'll hit that goal and you'll be able to choose the next big interview I try to record. I hope you'll agree with me that this is a potentially exciting, if slightly crazy, idea. Once again, thanks to the Roleplay Rescue patrons for supporting the show, and thanks to Tim Baker for the idea. Can you help us get out there and hit it? Patreon.com slash RPG Rescue. Game on! And that's about all we have time for this week. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something in there useful, or at least vaguely thought-provoking. Thank you to all the callers in for today's episode. So that includes Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, Goblin's Henchman from Goblin's Henchman Podcast, and Roy Lorenko from Chaos Lim. Thank you so much, all of you, for your call-ins. And, well, please, guys, keep them coming. 
Thank you again to the wonderful patrons who support Roleplay Rescue through patreon.com slash rpgrescue. Your cash just funded my D&D club at school. We bought a new starter set to give away and your support well, basically keeps me going. Thank you. Let's see if we can keep building a community of discovery in which everyone can feel accepted. My name is Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. I'll see you again on the flip side. Game on.